couple months ago, I arrived at work and saw that the workstations had been shuffled around. We're a pretty small office, and the owner, my boss, he likes to move us around a couple times a year, so it wasn't a shock. But it wasn't immediately clear where my new office was. And, very and my boss wasn't in yet, so I, and I asked a couple coworkers, and they didn't know. And very soon I was feeling outraged and angry about this inconsiderate office move that had left my office destiny unclear. In fact, I became quite sure that this was a statement about me personally. <laughs> At the very least, I had been overlooked. But it was probably a cruel message intended to let me know that my status was in question. I found a spot to sit down and work, and an hour later I learned what had actually happened. The night before, while rearranging offices, my boss had received a phone call with the terrible news that his beloved father had died that evening. I turned red with shame that I had been so quick to judgment and anger, so quick to conclude that what was going on was about me. We do this sometimes, don't we? This kind of thought pattern seems to come naturally. We tend to see ourselves as the center of the universe. We know intellectually, of course, that we most certainly are not. Each of us is, in fact, one of seven billion human creatures currently drawing breath on this earth. But for the most part, we see things as if we are the most important creature in the universe. Other people's needs simply aren't as vivid or real as our own. This view is basically hardwired into us. Simple biology requires that we meet our own needs, so naturally those are the most real needs in our conscious minds. And we are free, of course, to live according to those beliefs. But at what cost, we might ask ourselves, at what cost? In the speech from which our second reading comes, the writer David Foster Wallace speaks of our freedom to live mostly in our own heads, to pay attention only to our own perceptions and desires. He calls it being lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. He continues, and the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. Wallace continues, this kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but the really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over every day. Wallace is talking, I think, about one of the great dangers of contemporary life. If we're fortunate, many of us have a great deal of this kind of individual freedom. Freedom to choose what to eat, what shows to watch, 
what kind of shoes or yoga wear to buy, where to go on vacation. These tend to be the things that claim our attention. It is possible to never question the default settings of that kind of freedom with self at the center. Wallace called this the chains of not choosing what to worship. Chains, being eaten alive, as he says in the reading. These are some strong words. But they are not too far off from my own experience of choosing what to worship. My own process began when I went through what I would call a gray period about 12 years ago. It was as if my life was running out of gas. I felt vaguely unsatisfied and mildly depressed, and I had become more isolated than suits me. One thing that happened around this time was finding First Universalist and a religious home here, for which I'm eternally grateful. And another thing was realizing that I had basically no spiritual life to speak of. Nada. Zip. This had sometimes been a source of anxiety for me, but I usually just pushed it away. I noticed that when I was around people talking about their core beliefs or convictions, I would subtly steer the conversation away from such things. As I took a closer look at my life, I began to understand that what David Foster Wallace said was true. Everybody worships something, whether we choose it or not. I had to admit that I hadn't chosen anything consciously. And when I got really honest with myself, I saw that what I worshipped was safety. Safety. The elimination of risk. The avoidance of pain. And I used all manner of things to keep myself safe. At various times, I had used work and career, cigarettes, alcohol, sarcasm, jokes, irony, television, and simple denial. All of these had done their part to help me keep the world at arm's length, to help me stay risk-free and quote-unquote safe. Until, that is, they stopped working. And this was not a dramatic moment. I have no dramatic hitting bottom story. As I said, it was more like a gray period that was getting grayer. What happened was a slow process of becoming aware of an absence of what philosopher Blaise Pascal called a God-shaped hollow. In this process, I began to see the misdirection of my attention, how I had followed those default settings of self at the center, and I began to admit that it wasn't working for me, and I had a need to question it and to more intentionally choose what to worship. Over time, I have found my solid ground, my place to worship, in the great interconnectedness of all of creation. I am comfortable with calling it God. I believe that the divine is incarnate not only in one person or one story, but in the universe itself 
and in all of our stories. As Unitarian Universalists, we remind ourselves in our seventh principle of the great interdependent web of existence of which we humans are one part. Contact with this God connects me with all that is. It helps me get both decentered, I am not the center of the universe, and re-centered into right relationship into deep respect for and connection with the world. And from here, I am better able to act in ways that serve others. Now, as it turns out, I have a tendency to forget that this is where I want to pay attention to worship. I'm sure I'm not alone. In fact, if the proverbial aliens came down and observed me, they might conclude that what I worship is books, tennis, movies, and coffee. <laughs> I do really, really like all those things. Indeed, it is incredibly difficult to continually choose to worship something, to orient ourselves towards something that will feed our souls consistently and help us be our best selves. Over the years, I have tried a few different spiritual practices to help with that goal. Meditation and prayer are two things that I do in worshiping the God of my understanding. I struggle with consistency, like many people, but I return to those practices time and again, and I find great value in them. But there is a practice that has always been with me, that has fed my spirit for as long as I can remember. And that is the practice of paying attention to beauty. Even when I would have said that I had no spiritual life to speak of, moments of encounter with divine beauty were happening again and again. Often when I was engaged with art, music, literature, and in loving relationships. These moments of beauty, I think, were the seeds of my relationship with God, of coming to see the inexplicable wonder of creation as divine. More often than not, it has been beauty that saves me, points me, lifts me. In my experience, beauty can point us toward what we want to consciously choose to worship. But what do I mean by beauty? This poor word has had its meaning eroded and jumbled. We're not talking about superficial prettiness. This is not about mere surface appearances. In his book on beauty, John O'Donohue speaks of it as a call to awaken, as a homecoming of the human spirit. The wonder of the beautiful, he writes, is its ability to surprise us. With swift, sheer grace, it is like a divine breath that blows the heart open. Our culture continually pulls us away from ourselves and our deepest truths. We are bombarded by external stimuli. Millions of pretty images are available to us, and the pressure to be productive is there. This is not news. 
O'Donohue is suggesting that beauty can be a powerful antidote, and I agree with him. Let's take a minute to consider a few things that are beautiful. See if you can imagine these with me. The fragrance of a lilac bush in full bloom. The sound of a well-struck forehand in tennis. The face of a laughing baby. The novel Jane Eyre. The moment when two parties in conflict find a compromise they can live with in their mind's ease. The song Spirit of Life. Vincent van Gogh's Sunflowers. For thousands of years, philosophers have spoken of the power of a beautiful object to attract us, to call us into higher knowledge. What they're talking about is something more like a directional energy that pulls us toward the holy, toward what many call God, or the source, or the spirit of life. We respond to this attractional force not by simply taking it in with our senses, but by engaging with it at a soul level. The lilac bush points us toward awe at the whole of creation. The novel Jane Eyre demands consideration of what it means to live a life of personal integrity. A baby's laughing face touches and opens up our most tender, caring self, and we find there depths that we did not know about before. Beauty's power can both humble and challenge us. And this is where the problem of what to worship comes together with beauty. As I touched on earlier, it's easy to drop back into those default settings which convince us that we are the center of the world and which pull us away from where we really want to worship. This is the challenge. But it seems to me that life offers up beauty on a regular basis. I am amazed and grateful to see the way that life continually puts in front of me things that stop me in my tracks, that make me pay attention, that call me to awaken. Whether it's a new novel, a caterpillar, a roaring river, or an athlete in motion, what these moments of beauty can do is to shake us by the shoulders and say, look, look at this exquisiteness right here. If we are willing to pay attention, Beauty can shake us out of those default settings and say, look at what a wonder this world is. What do you want to do with your freedom? What is it that you are worshiping? One place I find a great deal of beauty is here at church. Again, I'm talking about that transcendent attractiveness, not superficial prettiness. Not that you all are not super good looking, you are. <laughs> As you know, if you've been here a few times or more, the worship services here are incredible conduits of beauty, especially in music, as we enjoyed today, and in words of wisdom. 
I think there's also beauty in people gathered at a committee on a Monday night, say, working through a tough question and coming up with a good answer. And there is beauty in our social hall, in the mixed-up smell of coffee, fundraiser egg rolls, and art supplies. These beautiful things all point to a community that is alive and breathing together. We gather here to find spiritual sustenance in that beauty. We come to get decentered and recentered. I want to close with another example of beauty in action, this time through the art of dance. A couple years ago, I was at a community choir performance, and also on the bill was a dance company called Kairos Alive. I had never heard of them. Some of you may know them. They danced to the choir's music for three songs. There were nine dancers, and they ranged in age from seven to 97, literally. There was a pregnant woman and a visually impaired man, and they varied in size and mobility as well. They moved together to the music, not in perfect unison, but absolutely united in joy and creative expression. It was an utterly striking vision of radical inclusiveness. The categories of dancer and performer ceased to mean only young and lithe and sighted and able-bodied. This dance company simply stepped right over those borders. And it was overwhelmingly beautiful. The performance had the effect of expanding that place inside us that knows the barriers between us are not nearly as solid as they seem. Like so much great art, it offered a beautiful vision of how things could be. It gave hope to that place inside us that believes in universal love and inclusion in our faith community's core value of universal love and inclusion. In this and countless other ways, beauty does its work of pointing us toward compassion and connection, pulling us toward our best selves. I wish for us all to feel beauty's divine breath and to listen to where beauty is calling us. May it be so, and amen.